Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from South Australia and Western Australia, published in 1874 and written by Anthony Trollope. This story looks at the very early days of Australia, starting as early as 1826. As an Australian myself, it's amazing to think how much has happened in such a short space of time. South Australia is a beautiful place if you ever get the chance to go there, and so is Western Australia. Neither of these states are where I'm from. I suggest you come and check out the entire country. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Firstly, a huge thank you to Jean Vitero for becoming a new patron on Patreon. Your monthly contribution is extremely appreciated. As always, thank you to all existing patrons and sponsors. Your support allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. A huge thank you to all Spotify listeners who answer the Q&A. And always, thank you to everybody who shared a message or left a review for me during the week. If you appreciate the podcast... A great way to say thank you is to leave a review. It's extremely helpful and even one sentence helps out. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. And you can always say hello to me at boytosleep.com or on Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime... Lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. South Australia and Western Australia by Anthony Trollope Being a portion of the work entitled Australia and New Zealand by the same author. South Australia, Chapter 1, Early History South Australia has a peculiar history of its own, differing very much from those of the other Australian colonies, though similar in some degree to that of New Zealand, which was founded after South Australia. New South Wales was taken up by Great Britain as a convict depot, and grew as such till the free inhabitants who had followed and surrounded the convicts 
became numerous and strong enough to declare that they would have no more such neighbours sent among them. Van Diemen's Land, which is now Tasmania, and Morton Bay, which is now Queensland, were occupied as convict dependencies to the parent establishment. Morton Bay was still part of New South Wales when New South Wales refused to be any longer regarded as an English prison, and Van Diemen's Land did for herself that which New South Wales had done before. Even Port Phillip, which is now Victoria, was first occupied by convicts sent thither from the parent colony, though it is right to say that the convict system never took root there, and that the attempt never reached fulfilment. On the same principle, New South Wales sent an offshoot convict depot to King George's Sound, which is now a part of Western Australia, an unhappy colony which, in its sore distress, was destined to save itself from utter destruction by delivering itself to the custody of compelled immigrants who could be made to come thither and work when others would not come. In this way, all the now existing Australian colonies, except South Australia, have either owed their origin to convicts or have been at one point of their existence, fostered by convict labour. But South Australia has never been blessed or cursed with the custody of a single British exile. In 1829, when Australian exploration was yet young, Captain Sturt, who had already travelled westwards from Sydney, till he found and named the Darling River, and had done much towards investigating the difficult problem of the central Australian waters, received a commission from the Government of New South Wales to make his way across the Murrumbidgee River and to discover by following its course what became of it. It was then believed by many, and among others by Captain Sturt himself, that the great waters of the continent, which had been reached but of which the estuaries were not known, ran into some huge central lake or internal sea. With the view of proving or of disproving the surmise, Captain Sturt, with a few companions, started on his journey, carrying with him a boat in detached pieces, in which he proposed to solve the mystery of the river. For it must be understood, none of those maritime explorers who had surveyed, or partially surveyed, the eastern, southern or western coasts of the continent, had discovered any river mouth by which it was supposed that these waters could escape 
to the sea. Sturt was very zealous and ambitious to make for himself a great name among Australian explorers, as he has done. In his account of a subsequent journey made into the inferior after he had found the river did not conduct him thither, he thus describes his own feelings. Let any man lay the map of Australia before him, and regard the blank upon its surface, and then let me ask if it would not be an honourable achievement to be the first to place foot upon its centre. This he did subsequently in 1845, but in 1829 to 1830, He and his companions made their way down the Murrumbidgee till that large river joined a still greater stream, which he first called the Murray. The upper part of this river had been crossed by Hovell and Hume in 1826 and had then been called the Hume. But the name given by Sturt is the one by which it will hereafter be known. He followed it till it was joined by another large river, which he rightly presumed to be that darling which he had himself discovered on a former journey. Still going on, he came to the great bend which the Murray makes. Hitherto, the course of the wanderers down the Murrumbidgee and down the Murray had been nearly due west. From the bend, the Murray runs south, and from henceforth it waters a territory which is now a part of the province or colony of South Australia. Sturt when he had progressed for a while southwards, must have begun to perceive that that surmise as to a great inland sea was incorrect. For the waters both of the Murrumbidgee and the Darling he had so far accounted, and he was now taking with him down to the Southern Ocean, the confluence of the three rivers, It is not my purpose in this book to describe the explorations of Australia, and I will not therefore stop to dwell upon the dangers which Sturt encountered. But it should be remembered that he was forced to carry with him all the provisions for his party, and he had no guide except the course of the waters which he was bound to follow. As he went, he was accompanied along the banks by tribes of natives, who, if not absolutely hostile, were astonished, suspicious, and irascible. Why they did not surround and destroy him and his little party, we can hardly conceive. As far as we yet know, no white man had been there before, And yet it appears from Sturt's account that the natives frequently evinced no astonishment whatever at firearms. 
looking on while birds were shot, and not even condescending to admire the precision with which they were killed. He went on southwards till he entered a big lake, now called Lake Alexandrina. There are indeed a succession of lakes or inland waters here, of which lakes Alexandrina and Albert are very shallow, rarely having as much as six feet of water, which is fresh or nearly very fresh, and the Kurong River, which is salt, and although as much within the mouth as are the lakes, must be regarded as an inlet of the sea. Of the lake and the Kurong River, Sturt appears to have seen nothing, but he did make his way with extreme difficulty through the tortuous and narrow and shallow opening of the river, which takes the waters of the lake down to the sea in Encounter Bay, and then perceived that for purposes of seaborne navigation, the great river of which he had followed the course must always be useless. Thus, he says, were our fears of the impracticability and inutility of the chain of communication between the lake and the ocean confirmed. Having so far succeeded and so far failed, he was called upon to decide what he would do next. He could see to the westward ranges of hills, which he rightly conceived to be those which Captain Flinders had described after surveying the coasts of Gulf St. Vincent and Spencer's Gulf. Flinders had called these hills Mount Lofty, and Sturt could perceive, at any rate could surmise, that there was a fertile, happy land lying between him and them. But he had not the means, nor had his men the strength to go across the country. He could not take his little whale boat out to sea, nor could he venture to remain on the shores of Encounter Bay till assistance should come to him from seawards. He had flour and tea left, and birds and kangaroo might be killed on the river banks. So he resolved to go back again up the river, and thus with infinite labour, he returned by the Murray and the Murrumbidgee, and made his way to Sydney. The results of this journey were twofold. Though Sturt did not discover the land in which the colony of South Australia was first founded, and on which the city of Adelaide now stands, the history of his journey and the account which had previously been given by Captain Flinders led to the survey of the land between the two gulfs and the Murray River. There stands a hill about 20 miles from Adelaide called Mount Barker in honour of Captain Barker 
who was killed by the natives while employed on this work. The land was found to be good and fit for agriculture, not sandy as is so large a proportion of the continent, nor heavily timbered as is a larger portion of it. The survey was made immediately on the receipt of Sturt's account, and the operations which were commenced with a view of planting the colony were no doubt primarily due to him. And he solved the great question as to the Australian waters, proving what all Australia now knows, to its infinite loss, that the River Murray the only considerable outflow of Australian waters with which we are as yet acquainted makes its way into the sea by a mouth which is not suited for navigation. There is already much traffic on the Murray and no doubt that traffic will increase. But there is very little traffic indeed from the Murray to the seaports even on the Australian coast, and it is not probable that the little will be extended. It is yet possible that on the north or northwestern coast navigable rivers may be found. Just now men who have visited the northern shore are beginning to tell us that the Roper River and the Victoria River may by certain processes of blasting and dredging become serviceable, not only for inland but also for maritime navigation. But hitherto Australia has had no river into which great ships can make their way, as they do on the open rivers of America, of Europe and of Asia. The narrowness and shallowness, or, as I may perhaps call it, the meanness of the mouth of the Murray, is one of the great natural disadvantages under which Australia labours. Tidings of the land between the Murray and the Gulfs came home, and then a company formed itself with the object of planting a colony as British settlements were formerly planted in North America. The plan to be followed was that which came to be known as the Wakefield system, the theory of which required that the land should be sold in small quantities at a sufficient price so that the purchasers could settle on their own lands and hold no more land than they would be able to occupy beneficially for themselves and the colony at large. This theory of occupation was to be adopted in distinct opposition to that under which large grants of land had been made in Western Australia, the territorial estates so granted having been far too extensive in area for beneficial occupation. In establishing new homes for the crowded population of old lands, 
it has been found almost impossible to follow out to any perfect success the theories of philanthropists, the greed of individuals on one side, and the obstinacy and ambition on other sides, have marred those embryo utopias in the prospect of which the brains of good men have reveled. Machinery, if the means and skill be sufficient, can be made to do its proposed work in exact conformity with the intentions of the projectors. But men are less reliable. They are, however, more powerful, each being the owner of a new energy. And though the utopian philanthropist may be disappointed, even to a broken heart, the very greed and obstinacy of his followers will often lead to greater results than would have been achieved by a strict compliance with the rules of a leader, however wise, however humane, however disinterested he may have been. The scheme proposed for the colonisation of South Australia was not carried out in strictness, but the colony is strong and healthy, and it may be doubted whether it would now be stronger or healthier, had a closer compliance with the intentions of the founders been affected. In 1834, an act was passed for founding the colony of South Australia. Under this act, it was specially provided that the proceeds of the land should be devoted to immigration. This, however, was no necessary part of Mr. Gibbon Wakefield's plan. In his evidence given subsequently before a committee of the House of Commons in 1836, he thus speaks of his own scheme. The object of the price is not to create an immigration fund. You may employ the fund in that way if you please, but the object of the price is to create circumstances in the colony which would render it, instead of a barbarous country, an extension of the old country with all the good but without the evils of the old society. There is no relation, it is easy to see, one which is of no consequence, but I can see no proper relation between the price required for land and immigration. He repeats the same opinion in his book called A View of the Art of Colonisation. This is written in the form of letters, and in letter 55 he says, So completely is the production of revenue a mere incident of the price of the land, that the price ought to be imposed. If it ought to be imposed under any circumstances, even though the purchase money were thrown away, Again in the same letter he continues, speaking of the money which would arise from the sale of land, 
It is an unappropriated fund which the state or government may dispose of as it pleases without injustice to anybody. If the fund were applied to paying off the public debt of the empire, nobody could complain of injustice because every colony as a whole and the buyers of land in particular would still enjoy all the intended and expected benefits of sufficient price upon new land. If the fund were thrown into the sea as it arrived, there would still be no injustice, and no reason against producing the fund in that way. This is a very strong way of putting it but Mr. Wakefield meant to assert that the consideration of the use to which the fund arising from the sale of land might be applied was no part of his plan. Let others decide as to that. He had seen that the grants of vast areas of land to men who had taken themselves out with a certain amount of capital and certain number of fellow emigrants, had not produced colonial success. There was the terrible example of Western Australia before him. The land was not occupied and was not tilled. Each newcomer thought that he should have had a share of the land rather than that he should perform a share of the labour. I would not, however, have it supposed that I am an admirer, generally either, of Mr. Wakefield's system of colonisation, as given in his book, or of his practice as carried out in New Zealand. He was right in maintaining that all land should be sold for a price so high as to prevent, at any rate for a time, the formation of large private estates in the hands of individuals, who would be powerless to use such estates when possessed, in almost all beyond that as in regard to his idea, that English society under the presidency of some great English magistrate, should be taken out to the young colony, with all the good, but without the evil. He is, I think, utopian. Of his own doings as a coloniser, I shall have to speak again in reference to New Zealand. Mr. Wakefield's plan was by no means adopted as a whole by the Act of 1834, in conformity with which the new colony was to be founded. In 1831, an attempt had been made to obtain a charter for forming a company, by which the new colony was to be planned in strict accordance with Mr. Wakefield's principle. But this scheme broke down, and in 1834 the Act was passed. Under this Act, it was provided that the land should be sold in small blocks, no doubt at a sufficient price, and that the money so realised should be applied to immigration. 
What's the sufficient price, should be Mr. Wakefield had never stated. Indeed, it would have been then impossible, and is still equally impossible, that any price should be fixed as the value of a commodity whose value varies in accordance with climate, position and soil. The impossibility of fixing a price for land, and yet the apparent necessity of doing so, has been the greatest difficulty felt in arranging the various schemes of Australian colonisation. At first sight, it may seem easy enough. Let the land be put up to auction, and let the purchaser fix the price. But when the work was commenced, it was necessary to get new settlers onto the land, who knew nothing of its relative value, who could not tell whether they could afford to give five cents or five pounds an acre for it, and then live upon it. These newcomers required to be instructed in all things, and in nothing more than as to the proper outlay of their small capitals, and the system of auction when it did come to prevail in the sale of crown lands, was found to produce the grossest abuses. I think I may say the vilest fraud. Men constituted themselves as land agents with the express purpose of exacting blackmail from those who were really desirous of purchasing. I will be your agent, such a one would say to the would-be purchaser. I will buy the land for you at a commission of a shilling an acre. You can buy it for yourself, you say then I shall bid against you. This system has prevailed to such an extent that the agency business has become an Australian profession, and men who did not want an acre of land have made fortunes by exacting tribute from those who were in earnest. As a rule, 20 cents an acre has been the normal price fixed in these colonies generally, though from that there have been various deviations. In South Australia proper, that is in South Australia exclusive of the Northern Territory, the Crown has never alienated an acre for less than 20 cents an acre. Mr. Wakefield seems to have considered that 40 cents an acre should have been demanded from the early settlers in the new colony, but he would fix no sum, always adhering to his term of sufficient price. The Act required that the money produced by the sale of lands should be employed in bridging immigrants into the country, but this requirement has not been fulfilled. A public debt was soon accumulated, and the colony decided that the proceeds of the land should be divided into three parts, that a third should go to immigration, 
a third to the public works, and a third to the repayment of the public debt. But this arrangement has again gone to the wall, and the money produced is now so much revenue, and is like other revenue at the disposal of the House of Assembly. But the Act of 1834 enjoined also that no convicts should ever be sent to South Australia, and this enactment has never been infringed. It is also decreed that as soon as the population of the new colony should have reached 50,000, a constitution with representative government should be granted to it. This too was carried out with sufficient accuracy. At the close of 1849, the population was 52,000. 904, and in 1850 the British Parliament conferred on the colonists the power of returning elected members to serve in the Legislative Council. I should hardly interest my readers if I were to dilate upon all the success and all the failures which the promoters of the South Australian plan encountered but it is well that they should understand that there was a plan and that the work was not done from hand to mouth, that South Australia did not progress accidentally and drift into free institutions, as was the case with the other Australian colonies. There was much both of success and of failure but it may be said that the attempt was made in a true spirit of philanthropy and that the result had been satisfactory, if not at first triumphant. Mr. Wakefield, Mr. Hutt, now Sir William Hutt, Colonel Torrens and Mr. Angus, were chief among those to whom the colony is indebted for its foundation. The first vessels sent out were dispatched by the South Australian Company, of which Mr Angus was the chairman. They arrived in 1836, but the newcomers knew nothing of the promised land before them. At the bottom of Gulf St Vincent, lying off a toe of the land, as Sicily lies off from Italy, is Kangaroo Island. It is barren, covered with thick scrub and deficient in water. No more unfortunate choice could have been made by young settlers. But here the first attempts were made and here still linger a few descendants of the first pioneers who live in primitive simplicity together. They have a town called Kingskit on Nepean Bay. Mr Sinnott, in his account of the colony, says that he was there in 1860-61, and that then there were about half a dozen houses chiefly occupied by the descendants and connections of one old gentleman. 
such was the fate of the earliest settlement formed by the South Australian Company. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story about South Australia in the 1800s. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.